You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. General Lee accompanied the troops in person, and as they emerged from the fierce combat they had waged in the depths of that tangled wilderness, driving the superior forces of their enemy before them across the open ground, he rode into their midst. The scene is one that can never be erased from the minds of those who witnessed it. The troops were pressing forward with all the ardor and enthusiasm of combat, The white smoke of musketry fringed the front of the line of battle, while the artillery on the hills and the rear of the infantry shook the earth with its thunder and filled the air with the wild shrieks of the shells that plunged into the masses of the retreating foe. To add greater horror and wonder to the scene, Chancellor House and the woods surrounding it were wrapped in flames. In the midst of this awful scene, General Lee, mounted upon that horse which we all remember so well, rode to the front of his his advancing battalions. His presence was the signal for one of those outbursts of enthusiasm which no one can appreciate who have not witnessed them. The fierce soldiers with their faces blackened with the smoke of battle, the wounded crawling with feeble limbs from the fury of the devouring flames— all seemed possessed with a common impulse. One long and broken cheer in which the feeble cry of those who lay helpless on the earth, blended with the strong voices of those who still fought, rose high above the roar of battle and hailed the presence of the victorious chief. He sat in the full realization of all that soldiers dream of, triumph, and as I looked upon him in the complete fruition of the success which his genius, courage, and confidence in his army had won, I thought that it must have been from such a scene that men in ancient days rose to the dignity of gods. Major Charles Marshall, Staff, General Robert E. Lee Marshall, an aide on Lee's staff, was on hand as Confederate forces swarmed into the open ground around the Chancellor House and drove Hooker's Federals back. General Lee, riding his favorite horse, Traveler, followed his troops to the burning house. In spite of heavy losses, the flames, the cries of the wounded men, and the chaos of battle, rebel soldiers stopped to cheer their beloved general at perhaps his greatest moment. Lee and his men had outmaneuvered and outfought an enemy more than twice their number. Marshall was right, it was the stuff of legends. Yet unbeknownst to those who witnessed that dramatic scene with Lee in the Chancellorsville clearing, May 3, 1863 would turn out to be the zenith of the audacious general's wartime career. That's because the chance here for ultimate victory 
for the destruction of the Army of the Potomac passed quickly, and Lee, it would turn out, was unable to land the killing blow. But that was all still hanging in the balance as Robert E. Lee rode Traveler into the fire and smoke-filled clearing on May 3rd, with his men around him cheering him wildly, with their faces smeared with gunpowder and sweat and blood. What was true in that moment was that they had overcome incredible odds and were at the very peak of their power. And that was very literally true, that in that moment of fire and fury, Lee and his Army of Northern Virginia were at the apex of their power. They didn't know it, of course, but general and men had reached their high tide. After Chancellorsville, they would never again win a major offensive battlefield victory. In the spring of 1863, at Chancellorsville, Lee's greatest opportunity to destroy the Army of the Potomac slipped through his fingers, and he would never have such a chance again. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 258 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, thanks for tuning in to the podcast. With this episode, we officially launch into our Chancellorsville story arc, although with some previous shows, we've already been setting the stage for our discussion of this campaign, and so if you haven't already listened to episodes 253 and 254, then we encourage you to go back and check them out. And, as we are wont to do at the beginning of our coverage of most major campaigns and battles, we'll encourage you once again to get your Civil War Atlas off the shelf and open it up. Or, with the day and age we live in, you can certainly hop on the Internet and pull up a map or two to look at. If you're like us and prefer to have a book in your hands, though, will point you once again to what has become the, I suppose, semi-official atlas of the podcast. That's Time Life's Echoes of Glory, Illustrated Atlas of the Civil War. It's long out of print, but you can still easily pick up a copy on the internet. Alright, so with those preliminaries out of the way, let's get started. In April, in the spring of 1863, the Army of the Potomac's morale was higher than it had been in months. Following the bloody debacle at the Battle of Fredericksburg the previous December, when it had suffered some 13,000 casualties in a series of fruitless attacks against a strong Confederate defensive position, and then the misery of the Mud March in January, when its attempt to flank the rebel army bogged down in terrible weather and bottomless roads, the Army's morale had sunk to near despair. The 6th Wisconsin's Lieutenant Colonel Rufus Dawes considered the winter of 1862-63, quote, the Valley Forge of the War. That all changed, though, when Abraham Lincoln gave Major General Joseph Hooker command of the Army of the Potomac. 
As we've already talked about in episodes 253 and 254, following his elevation to commanding general, Hooker's first order of business had been to reorganize the army and rebuild morale. To just about everyone's surprise, Hooker proved to be a remarkably capable administrator, and so he entered the Chancellorsville campaign at the head of a force of over 130,000 men with ample equipment, strong discipline, and high morale. He pronounced it, quote, the finest army on the planet. And, as astute and observer, as Confederate artillerist E. Porter Alexander spoke of it after the war as, quote, Hooker's great army, the greatest this country had ever seen. The bedraggled foe of the revitalized Army of the Potomac was General Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. By mid-January 1863, Lee had about 78,000 men stretched along a front of nearly 30 miles, covering all possible approaches the Federals might take to cross the Rappahannock. But Lee also had other motives for the widely dispersed front, because the Virginia countryside here had been picked clean by the troops by this time, and when coupled with the abysmal performance of the Confederate supply system, that meant that by late winter, provisions for the men and forage for horses were alarmingly insufficient. To help the situation, Lee, in mid-February, detached two divisions from Lieutenant General James Longstreet's First Corps, the divisions of George Pickett and John B. Hood, and sent them south, first to Richmond, and from there toward the southeast corner of Virginia, with the dual assignment of, one, keeping an eye on the federal footholds at Fort Monroe, Norfolk, and Suffolk, and two, foraging for supplies for the rest of the army. In fact, at the start of the mission, Lee had told Longstreet, who was to command the detached divisions himself, that, quote, I consider it of the first importance to draw from the districts every pound of provision and forage we can. With Longstreet gone to Southside, Virginia, that left Lee to man the line along the Rappahannock with Longstreet's other two divisions, those of Lafayette McClaws and Richard Anderson, as well as the entire Second Corps, commanded by Stonewall Jackson. In all, after Longstreet's departure, Lee had perhaps 60,000 men at his disposal, which left him severely outnumbered by the Yankee host just across the river. Lee was tempting fate the longer a quarter of his army remained 130 miles away and the situation became even more perilous once Longstreet became entangled in a siege of Union-held Suffolk, which meant it would be impossible for his troops to quickly return to Fredericksburg. Even in an emergency, Longstreet would need a full week or more to break off the siege and reunite his force with the rest of Lee's army on the Rappahannock. However, Longstreet's absence and the situation in southeast Virginia was just one component of the increasingly complicated strategic picture confronting Lee and the Confederacy. In Middle Tennessee, William Rosecrans's army occupied Murfreesboro and was expected to begin an advance toward Chattanooga any day. 
Out in Mississippi, Ulysses S. Grant's Army and the Federal's Brownwater Navy together posed a grave threat to Vicksburg. And then food riots in Richmond and other places were alarming reminders that conditions on the southern home front were deteriorating. In the midst of all this, Robert E. Lee fell seriously ill. He had turned 56 in January, and in early March had written to his wife, saying that he was, quote, in indifferent health and feel almost worn out, so that I fear that I may be unable in the approaching campaign to go through with the work before me. After two weeks or so, Lee's symptoms worsened to what he described as, quote, a heavy cold, and then, quote, a violent cold. At the insistence of his medical director, Lee moved from his field tent headquarters into a nearby country house. Only on April 9th could Lee write to his wife that he believed he was finally on the mend, but only after episodes of terrible pain in his chest, back, and legs that he told her came on in severe spasms. From Lee's descriptions of his symptoms, he likely suffered from pericarditis, an inflammation of the membrane sac around the heart. It's also likely that angina pectoris was present, the heart disease that would cause his death seven years later. At any rate, this episode, at the end of March 1863, was the first sign of the affliction. As late as April 12th, he was writing... I hope in a few days I shall be as well as ever. But by mid-April, Lee did seem to be feeling better. He wrote his daughter, saying, I am able to ride out every day, and now that the weather has become good, I hope I shall recover my strength. And Lee knew he would need his strength. Already he was getting reports of movement on the far side of the river. Although he had no clear picture of what those reports meant, Hooker, it seemed, was waking up his army. Lee had to rest his hope on the expectation that when the Federals started to make their move, opening the spring campaign, he would have enough time to concentrate his own widely dispersed forces. If Lee was hoping he would have time to concentrate his army to meet any Federal threat when it materialized, the Confederate commander was probably also thinking that Hooker was no more of a general to worry about than his predecessors. Lee had taken cruel advantage of George McClellan's timidity. He had only contempt for John Pope. Lee had expressed no recorded opinion of Ambrose Burnside, but that Yankee general's direction of the futile Fredericksburg assaults did nothing to earn him anyone's respect. And, evidently, Lee expected more of the same from Hooker, even if that general might command an army more than twice the size of Lee's own available force. Making a mocking reference to Hooker's Fighting Joe nickname, Lee wrote to his wife that, quote, I owe Mr. F.J. Hooker no thanks for keeping me here in this state of expectancy. He ought to have made up his mind long ago what to do. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. 
On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Mr. F.J. Hooker had, in fact, already made up his mind what to do. As fine spring weather dried the roads, Hooker knew he would be expected to act sooner rather than later and win a victory. That was, after all, precisely why he had been placed in command of the Army of the Potomac. And with the Confederate forces opposite him depleted by the absence of Longstreet's two divisions— Hooker enjoyed an enormous numerical superiority over Lee, but that advantage couldn't be expected to last. Another circumstance to factor into the equation was that the enlistments of over 25,000 federal troops would expire in May, and most of them would probably be going home rather than re-enlist. The improving roads, the expectations of the administration in Washington, the numerical superiority over the enemy— the looming expiration of enlistments, all underscored the fact that clearly Hooker would have to make his move in April. But where to make his move? That was the question. A renewal of the attack at Fredericksburg was not an option, for in the months that had passed since the December battle, the Confederates had greatly improved their defenses there. So the Federals would have to outflank the rebels, but that wouldn't be such a simple task. On the Federal left, downstream, the Rappahannock widened steadily, and it was swollen by the spring runoff, so a successful crossing in that direction was doubtful. The prospects weren't much more promising to Hooker's immediate right, where Banks Ford, five miles northwest of Fredericksburg, and United States Ford, seven miles beyond that, were closely watched and heavily guarded by the rebels. But farther up, above the confluence of the Rapidan and Rappahannock rivers, both streams could be crossed relatively easily with little likelihood of serious resistance. 
In fact, Hooker's plan in this regard wasn't too different from the one Ambrose Burnside had tried to execute when the army got bogged down in the mud march. The first phase of Hooker's plan, as described by John Bigelow in his classic book, The Campaign of Chancellorsville, would be to deploy his newly reorganized cavalry as a raiding force, quote, for the purpose of turning the enemy's position on his left and of throwing the command between him and Richmond and isolating him from his supplies, checking his retreat, and inflicting on him every possible injury which will tend to his discomfiture and defeat. End quote. Well, that was a tall task, to be sure. And to carry out his orders, Hooker called on his recently appointed Cavalry Corps commander, Brigadier General George Stoneman. Hooker wanted the Union cavalry to strike out northwest toward the Confederate far-left flank and cross the Rappahannock and Rapidan rivers. From there, Stoneman was to move south into Lee's rear areas, following the rail lines and destroying all the bridges, stations, and rolling stock he could. Hooker was well aware of Lee's supply problems, so the hope was that the Federal horsemen would cause serious damage to the Rebel Army's supply lines and cause as much panic and consternation in and around Richmond as possible. To support Stoneman's raid, Hooker assigned cavalry detachments led by Colonels Judson Kilpatrick and Percy Wyndham the task of striking out from points southeast of Fredericksburg, also with the mission of interdicting the rebel rail lines. If all went as planned, there would be nearly 10,000 Union horsemen in Lee's rear, wreaking havoc on the Confederates' lines of communication. As for his infantry, Hooker planned to split it into two separate forces. He intended to lead the 5th, 11th, and 12th Corps, nearly 60,000 men, upstream to the northwest around Lee's left flank. Like Stoneman's cavalry, which would have gone before them, Hooker's infantry would cross the Rappahannock and Rapidan rivers, but instead of moving south, the head of the column would turn east, doubling back toward Fredericksburg. Hooker's hope was for this force to move as quickly as possible and use the elements of speed and surprise to outflank Lee. As daring as this plan was, the lack of a substantial cavalry force here would leave Hooker essentially blind. Hooker retained only one undersized brigade of horsemen, about 1,150 troopers, to lead his right wing into the wilderness of Orange and Spotsylvania counties. In any case, the success of the operation actually all depended on the other portion of Hooker's army, his left wing, which, we would, which he would leave in place across the Rappahannock from Fredericksburg. The units of the 1st, 3rd, and 6th Corps, consisting of about 65,000 men, would act as a diversionary force under the direction of 6th Corps Commander Major General John Sedgwick. It would be Sedgwick's first major independent command. Hooker expected Sedgwick to cross at Fredericksburg and demonstrate against the Confederate defenses to keep Lee's attention focused on what was happening there in front of him. Meanwhile, Hooker's maneuver element, 
his fast-moving right wing, would come in from the west to act as a hammer, smashing Lee against the anvil of Sedgwick's force. Hooker believed Lee's only two options were to stand fast at Fredericksburg and be smashed between the hammer and the anvil, or the Confederate commander could try to slip out of that trap by withdrawing southward along the rail line toward Richmond. If Lee did that, however, Hooker expected that Stoneman's Union cavalry would be in position to block or at least hinder the Confederate retreat long enough to allow Hooker to come up against Lee's rear and force the rebels to turn and give battle on extremely disadvantageous terms. It was actually a good plan, a great plan even, and fighting Joe Hooker exuded supreme confidence in it. He assured a group of his officers, quote, My plans are perfect, and when I start to carry them out, may God have mercy on General Lee, for I will have none. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Campaign of Chancellorsville, a strategic and tactical study by John Bigelow, Jr. Bigelow's book was first published in 1910, so it's a classic, definitely, but still a must-have for anyone wanting to seriously study Chancellorsville. One of the reasons for that is the several dozen fold-out maps included with the book. But a word of caution in that regard. Be sure to get an edition that includes those maps. We have the Morningside facsimile reprint of the original, so no worries there. But it's our understanding that some other uh, budget reprints don't include the maps, and that's just a shame. So, just a word to the wise there. Anyway, that's The Campaign of Chancellorsville, a strategic and tactical study by John Bigelow. You can find a handy list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the podcast website, you can start the process of signing up to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade. The cost of membership is $5 a month, and that gives you access to over 75 extra episodes and counting there on the website. And it also gives you that warm, fuzzy feeling from doing a good deed and supporting the ongoing work we're doing here with the show, telling the story of the Civil War, one podcast episode at a time. And we want to thank William, Elizabeth, and John for signing on this past week. We appreciate your support. We also want to thank Frank W. in Florida for his donation this past week. Yep, thanks, Frank. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Chancellorsville. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.